listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington, and my research focuses on machine learning, natural language processing, and structured prediction. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Aero Simoncelli, who is currently a professor of neuroscience, mathematics, data science, and psychology at New York University. Aero's research focuses on representation and analysis of visual information, including mathematical models of biological visual processing, visual perception, statistical inverse problems in image processing, and computer vision. Arrow's PhD thesis is titled Distributed Representation and Analysis of Visual Motion, which he completed in 1993 at MIT. We discuss his interdisciplinary interests and his path to doing a PhD, then talk about his PhD work, which focused on optical flow. We talk about which ideas and methods have stayed with him throughout his career, discuss how Bayesian inference relates to brain function, the goals of making biological connections with statistical and machine learning models, and discuss how Arrow's perspective of vision has changed and stayed the same, including the impact of deep learning. As always, we end the podcast with some valuable advice for researchers. The thesis review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Thesis Review. If you'd like to support the podcast, we're now on Patreon at patreon.com slash thesis review, where you can subscribe and become a recurring supporter, or you can make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash thesis review. There are links to the thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Aero Simoncelli with Distributed Representation and Analysis of Visual Motion on the Thesis Review. thesis, you said that the goal is to develop a framework for representation of motion information that is mathematically elegant, serves as a basis for biological modeling, and is efficient and robust for use in machine vision applications. I was a little ambitious. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) A fun question to start, um, just focusing on this idea of the mathematical elegance. Do you think that the elegance that we find in mathematics is similar to the elegance that we find in the biological sciences or neuroscience, or is it somehow different? So in a sense, I, um, I, I, I insist in the, in the way that I think about it and the way I approach these problems um, that it has to be um, I'm going to define elegance as you know the, the the kind of thing that I'm aiming for that's going to be common to both the underlying mathematics and the biology. Um, what I mean by that is um, I think that there are fundamental principles, um, often quite simple once you kind of strip away all the um, the stuff that's around them. Uh, there are fundamental principles that that drive uh, that have driven biology through you know through evolution and development um, 
the brain doesn't do what it does by accident. It it, it basically does it because it, it has to. That's that's it's we we are driven to um, to think, to perceive, to process things in the world, to drive our own actions and activities, to make our decisions, to have the emotions that we have, because um, there are really basic principles behind all of those things. And that, for me, has become uh, central to my the way I approach science. And um, to me, that's also the thing that's beautiful about mathematics, distilling things down to sort of fundamentals. Mm-hmm. Um, so most people, I think, would, would have a completely opposite take on this. They would say, oh, well, biology is um, it's not at all like mathematics. It's very messy. It's, you know, it's really it's kind of noisy and messy and things are squishy and no two animals are the same and no two brains are the same and no two neurons are the same. And, and they would be right. Um, but what I would say is that, that for me, um, the goal is to find the things that are the same. <clears throat> and those are the, those fundamental um, conceptual principles, the things that are driving, uh, driving it to, to be able to do what it does. So mm-hmm. in that sense, I think it's, uh, the, my answer is yes. Um, I think that the, that those things have a certain elegance of a sort of simplicity. And I, a lot of this came from my advisor. These are not, you know, I, I've taken them on as kind of the way I like to think about things, but I don't claim to have invented any of this. I'm very much influenced by um, people around me, especially people like my, my, my PhD advisor um, had a huge influence on the way I think about problems. Yeah. So yeah, let's um, let's go back to what led up to you investigating things like this. So what was your background leading into the PhD, and how did you actually decide to do a PhD and to eventually, you know, focus on research? Yeah. So the um, I'll try to keep it short, but it's probably worth just mentioning. I mean, I think the things that make that are a little different about me maybe than um, a lot of other people that work in similar areas. Um, I, there were two things at, at when I was a kid that really drove me and drove me in a, in a way that made me a very, I was a very intense kid. I, um, I could sit alone in my room working on something for hours. I would skip meals. I, I, I was unstoppable once I started focusing on something. Um, and and the, the things that I would focus on were really, there were two, two things um, that drove me. One is that I, I loved to make things, to build things. Uh, I built a lot of model airplanes and all kinds of just always trying to figure out how to build things, how to make things. That's a little bit my, I guess it's sort of like family heritage. My grandfather was a stonemason. My father's an architect. So I grew up wanting to know how to make things, how to put them together. But there's another side of it for me, and which is really what drove me towards science. And that is I wanted to also figure out how things worked. So when I would encounter something, whether it was man-made or something in nature, and I didn't understand what happened could that possibly behave that way i always wanted to take it apart and figure it out so my my room was filled with um appliances um that had stopped working and i had and i would just um, like steal these i would take them from the kitchen or take them out of the living room whatever stuff around the house i would steal them and squirrel them away in my room and take them apart and sometimes i would figure out how to fix them or how to bring them back and, so, and a lot of times i wouldn't or i would break something else but i was always for me it didn't matter the main goal was actually to figure out something about how they worked so those two things kind of led me you know all the way through high school 
I liked I liked math, but probably more than that, I, I loved math. But I but probably more than that, I liked woodshop. I like <laughs> I liked making things. I liked cutting things, gluing things, fitting, figuring out how to fit them together. I liked designing them. And so when I got to uh, when I went to college, uh, oh, and there's one other really formative moment um, when I was in I think ninth grade. Um, we had to do this project of like picking somebody. Uh, we had this list of people that had volunteered um, to be interviewed about careers. And we had to pick something that we thought sounded like what we would want to do as a career. Um, and we had to interview them. And I had just read, there was a Scientific American issue on the brain. Mm. And I had just read this. I, I read a couple of articles in there. And I thought it was the most amazing thing I had ever heard of. Um, the idea that um, everything that we do, everything we think, everything we communicate, everything we perceive, um, everything we feel is uh, a bunch of little electrical signals that are flying around this giant mess of a device. Um, that was just completely amazing to me. And um, and so I found uh, some guy who did, I don't remember, like biomedical engineering, and he was doing things was something I don't even remember what it was but anyway um, so I had to interview him but I decided I wanted to study the brain right then I think it was ninth grade mm. and so that was and it really kind of stuck with me I kept thinking about it even though I wasn't doing anything in that direction I was, I was thinking about it. so I went to college and I thought okay I'm going to be a biology major because I want to study the brain what, what else would I do I have to study biology and I lasted about um, two weeks in my intro bio course um, because um, it was two weeks of um, get labels and names of things. <laughs> I, I got two weeks in and I thought, um, I'm, I'm completely bored. I don't, I don't care about any of this. I don't really care what things are called. And I have a bad memory. I've always had a bad memory. I never remember names of things. I don't remember lists of things. You're already looking for the principles. Yeah. And I and I and I sat in this class for two weeks, and I thought I, I'm 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 bored. I, I'm not interested in this, and I'm going to fail. <laughs> I'm just not going to remember all this stuff. I'm going to my first semester as a freshman. I'm just going to fail out of college. So I dropped the class, and <laughs> and I was terrified because I thought, oh my God, my dream to be a to study neuroscience and the brain is just going to go down the toilet right now first semester, two weeks in. Um, um, but I, you know, I kind of, I took, I, I substituted, I think a math course and I was already taking a physics course and I thought it's all right, I'll find other things that are interesting. So I, uh, made it through under my undergraduate years. I did, um, my, my junior year, I took neurobiology, even though I wasn't supposed to, because I didn't have any of the prerequisites, but I begged the professor to let me in. And he did. He was nice enough to let me in. I said, I'm going to work really hard because this is what I want to do. And he said, well, you're going about it in a strange way. And I said, yeah, but this is what I want to do. So I studied um, neurobiology and um, and I worked in a lab uh, in actually in the psychology department. Um, but again, related to uh, understanding the brain. Um, so when I was finally, you know, finished with all of this and I was thinking about my career path, um, I, I, you know, I was still thinking I want to be I want to study the brain. But I but I had realized at that point that I didn't want to study the brain as like a wet biologist. Mm. 
I kind of, you know, came around to realizing, no, I actually, I really like math too much. I liked um, thinking about signals and I want to figure out how it works, but I don't, that doesn't mean I just want to cut it apart and uh, measure things. Um, right. So not that there's anything wrong with doing that. I'm just, you know, it wasn't for me. It wasn't the right thing. So I had to find my own path. So I went, uh, you know, I bumbled my way around. I went off and studied math for a couple of years because I couldn't figure out exactly what I wanted to do as a graduate student, even though I knew I wanted to get a PhD. And I eventually came around to applying to electrical engineering departments because I realized I want to study how signals um, work. Um, that seems like useful to for understanding the brain. Um, <laughs> so I still, I, I couldn't bring myself to go back to biology. I had, <laughs> so I went to, a, I went, I did a PhD in electrical engineering, as you know, and, um, mm -hmm. and I was very lucky to meet um, somebody to lead me down that path who my, my advisor, who was thinking about um, image processing and computer vision. He was trained as an experimental psychologist he knew a lot about neurobiology and he had done a lot of collaboration with people that were neuroscientists and yet, um, but he was working strangely enough. He was working at David Sarnoff research center, which, <laughs> which was a, um, it's the birthplace of, of, um, modern television. So it was a research center where they actually designed and built uh, televisions and technology that went with te televisions and um, Ted Adelson that was my advisor he was in a group that did um, sort of perceptual things related to television so this was a group of people that were thinking about you know how to make images better and how to transmit them and have them come out the other end on a, on a tube that looked better um, and he knew a lot about perception but also you know again about neurobiology but also about image processing and signal processing and, and vision computer vision so it's for me, like right from the outset, I got this blend of all those things, some influence from all of all those things. And the courses I was taking were, you know, statistical estimation and information theory and stuff like that. Um, Fourier transforms, you know, things that you do as an electrical engineer. Yeah. So even back then, it seems like um, be because nowadays you're a professor and in multiple departments, right? So like neuroscience, yeah. uh, mathematics, psychology, data science. And it sounds yeah. like even back then you were kind of motivated by a mix of things. Always, always. Yeah. I, I always had trouble making decisions in general. Anybody in my lab will tell you I have, I'm not a good decision maker. Um, and um, uh, and I, I kind of, what I did in, instead of deciding between all those things was to find a way to blend them and to use the, the sort of motivations, principles, and ideas from them, you know, in a, in a sort of common framework. I, uh, you also, I don't know if, I don't know if I told you this or we mentioned it earlier, but I, I actually, my first faculty job was not here at NYU. Um, I started out at University of Pennsylvania, actually in the computer and information science department. Um, so that was my first faculty job. I was there for three years. I see. Um, yeah. How did you begin to narrow down on a PhD topic. So you ended up focusing on uh, representation and optical flow. More hard, more hard decisions. Well, I did a master's degree first. It was actually required, um, the department required uh, you to start by doing a master's degree. And then that was kind of your stepping stone. If you did well at that, then they would keep you on for the PhD. I mean, I was there for the PhD program, but I had to do the master's first. 
my master's thesis was actually um, not about biology at all, although it is um, like everything I've done, it's still with me and I use those ideas and tools essentially every day. Um, my master's thesis was on multi-scale image representation and processing, what later became known as wavelets. They weren't called, there was no such thing as wavelets. The name didn't exist when I started. Um, we did, um, we, we were thinking, but, but a lot, the, the, the common theme that is with me today is the idea of taking visual information and figuring out better ways to represent it, plain and simple. Mm -hmm which is something that is of interest in the, you know, in understanding the brain. How do we represent the visual information that comes into our eyes, in our brains? Um, how does that lead to perception? How does that allow us to, you know, extract the things that we need to extract from our visual input? Um, but it's also, it's also, of course, completely relevant to computer vision and image processing. It's the same fundamental set of questions about how, why do you, why do you take an input, an image, uh, whether that's coming into a camera or into your eye, you make these measurements of light intensity. And um, why is that not the end of the story? Um, why, why do you bother to convert that into some other format? Um, when I tell people, uh, you know, lay people, my, my family, my, my, my dad, um, what I do, and I say, I study vision, you know, and he says, well, what do you mean? I say, well, you know, light comes into your eye like it would in a camera and you capture it and then you have to process. It. And he says, well, I don't, I don't understand. I mean, the light comes into the camera and you and you measure it and you record it and then you have the picture and you're done. <laughs> what, why, why is there anything else? <laughs> so I, yeah. I think that's kind of fun and a little bit philosophical. Right. Well, actually, right. why do you do anything else? What what? What, what, why are you going to re-represent that? What's the purpose? What, what, why does the brain transform what comes into your eyes, send it down the optic nerve, run it through your visual cortex, do all these things to it? Why? What for? So that, to me, became my starting question when I began as a graduate student. Kind of on that note, so how do you think about what vision is? Because in some sense, is it necessary to pull in even things like reasoning to completely solve vision? Uh, because when you're looking at a scene, you might have to do some form of reasoning. How broad of a category is vision? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, I tend to think very abstractly and very broadly. Um, so for me, um, my view of vision, you know, it's changed a bit over the years, but I think the, the, ba the, the basics of this were already there when I was a, when I was a, even when I was a master's student. Mm -hmm. I'm going to put this in the context of a biological organism, but I think it's completely appropriate for machine learning and computer vision as well. Um, your job is to extract information from the environment. Why do you do that? Well, we can kind of come up with two, two basic answers. Um, but I think in the end, you can fuse them into one answer. I used, I, and maybe that's what's changed for me over the years. I used to think, okay, in computer vision, there's two things that we do. We take images and we, um, we either are trying to extract some piece of information from them, like how far away is that thing? Or um, uh, what color is that object? Or, um, you know, what would I have to do to reach out and grab that thing? 
Like what orientation do I have to make my you know, how is that thing positioned and how big is it and how far do I have to reach to get it? Things like that. So it's about interacting with the world or if you like driving motor programs to interact with the world. And then the other, th the, I guess the other thing that we do is, is we um, store things, maybe recognize them, reason about them, think about them. That's sort of a cognitive side. And I used to think, well, those are two very separate things. There's like the internal thing that you do with vision, and then there's maybe the external thing. So I think of the sensory motor loop. And in fact, computer vision used to be very partitioned into the into two chunks of stuff. There were the people that were interested in robotics. So they wanted to use vision, put cameras on robots, and have them be able to navigate and move around and um, identify things in the scene, not trip over things or you know go around obstacles, stuff like that. And of course, that's still with us, self-driving cars. That's a big piece of what's going on. Um, and then there were the people that wanted to actually do more cognitive things. They wanted to recognize things. They wanted to identify things. They wanted to um, uh, reason about the scene. Mm -hmm. kind of internal reasoning. And I, I guess I've come to think of all of this as um, sort of the same, the same. It's, it's like that the, the purpose really is to, is to sort of um, make predictions about your world. And uh, the very simple versions of those predictions are so you can like do simple actions. So even a very simple organism um, makes very simple measurements and very simple predictions and then acts on, on, on those. So you even, I mean, you can go all the way down to like a single cell organism. It measures gradients of concentrations of things that it cares about or gradients of things like um, acidity, you know, pH or light or temperature. And it'll kind of move in the direction that's appropriate given what it needs. I need more food, I need less food, I need more warmth. Um, so that's the like the, the most basic sensory motor loop would be um, at the level of an, an organism that's that simple. And even an organism that simple has in it a state. So it knows, um, here's my current state. My current state is that I need food. I need nutrients. And so I need to um, make my measurements and act accordingly based on my current state. So now you have three things. You've got the input, your measurements, you've got your internal state, and then you've got your motor commands, what you're going to do about it. And and so all of biology, I think, all biological organisms come down to um, dealing with those three things. And now, um, once you start, you say, okay, a more complicated organism builds up a more complicated internal state and measures a lot more complicated things, many, many, many more axes of measurements, and reasons about those things um, to make much longer-term predictions about what to do. So you're not just instantaneously responding to, oh, the gradient of, you know, the pH gradient is going in this direction, so I'm going to go in that direction. You're thinking about, um, well, if I do this today, then tomorrow when I see the same person that I'm currently talking to, um, they'll treat me a little better. Or I'll be able to trust them. Or I can ask them for, you know, to give me back something that I'm giving them. Uh, so, and that requires a lot of internal state. Now I have to remember things. I have to have uh, assigned values to things. I have to kind of store very complex internal state in order to act on it, not just now, but in the future, maybe very far in the future. So, so to me, vision is just part of that. Yeah. It's, it's part of that, that planning and predicting um, cycle that is basically about all of 
biological organism does and it's and it's it's really what most of our machine learning systems need to do too usually on some more limited scale mm -hmm. yeah yeah so it sounds like it's not as uh nicely decoupled maybe as originally thought that it's really tied into all these different things about prediction which don't at the surface at least seem to be about vision yeah um yeah i mean to me um that that's exciting because it means that vision is just one particular window on or one particular avenue to explore and understand um something much much more general that's about you know the purpose of life <laughs> it's it gets very <laughs> philosophical right the the reason for the existence of living creatures um, but of course, I mean, we could, as I said, you know, we can be very philosophical about this. We can dream about it. We can see connections to all kinds of things. But in the end, of course, you have to pull back and you focus and you, and you actually work and study, um, you know, a very particular instance under particular circumstances, maybe a little piece of vision. And, yeah. you know, I can be grandiose about it, but in fact, what I actually work on is not nearly so grandiose. These are the, a lot of these ideas, though, these are some of these are things that I started thinking when I was a graduate student. I have notebooks from when I was a graduate student. And every now and then I open one up and I'm always amused because I see I'll bump into something and I'll think I was just thinking about that last week. Um, so th these things stuck with me. Um, they're still there. They've some of them have been refined or generalized. But this idea that prediction offers <clears throat> a, a sort of substrate for really explaining or motivating an understanding of, of everything that we do as organisms and everything the brain does and everything we do with vision um, is something that I started thinking about that. And it's actually now coming to fruition. I'm, I'm actually very excited because a lot of machine learning recently is, is starting to lean in this direction of, of being able to make predictions. Um, yeah, so maybe that's a good, that's a good lead in. Let's, let's move from the clouds down to the uh down to the death <laughs> we're working on a specific problem okay and maybe uh talk about what you looked into back during your phd days so it was focused on this problem of optical flow uh, you said you focused on the representational aspect and built these probabilistic models around them yeah could you just give some background on the problem that you looked into and how you started working on it sure so I was a grad student at MIT, and I took um, a course with Bertolt Horn, who was a very famous uh, robotics and computer vision professor. Uh, he had written a book called Robot Vision, which I still have on my shelf. Um, and um, and he was, you know, it was very inspiring to hear his viewpoint. He he thought about this in a very very different way than the way my mind works. Um, but I found it both challenging and interesting to try to understand his perspective. And I learned a lot from uh, taking that class. Anyway, a big piece uh, of the early part of the course was about how to do, uh, was, was thinking about um, 3D structures in the world and what happens when they get projected onto an image and how to reason about that and use that for things like navigation. And uh, so we learned a lot about those relationships and, and a big, and Horn was famous for some work he had done in the early 80s. And I hope I'm getting that date right, maybe 1980. Um, uh, on on estimating optic flow, and I was taking all these courses at the time on statistical estimation, and I was thinking about also about biology, and I was thinking about 
you know, what's the relationship between these things? And that kind of was the, I think, a starting point for me. Um, and I saw ways to think about um, computing optic flow that were not really so much about the flow, but how do we represent motion signals? And so it really was, so it was less algorithmic and it was less goal oriented. Like I want to estimate flow because I'm trying to figure out, you know, depth information. It was more about, well, what is the signal? What's in the signal? How do we, how would we go about extracting that and representing that in a clean form? And so, um, my uh, advisor, uh, Ted, had thought a lot about a, a sort of version of this that was quasi-physiological. And so for me, I, it became uh, a mission to find a way to mix what Bertolt Horn was describing in his course, which is very kind of solid, nuts and bolts computer vision. How do I compute this for a robot? And my advisor who was thinking about actually a lot about perception a little bit about neuroscience and all this statistical estimation stuff that i was learning about in my classes and i was trying to put that together in my head and and i said well these people are talking about sort of the same thing but they're saying it in completely different language and it's not obvious how to relate it but there must be a way to it's the same basic problem um so for me that Basically, that became my PhD thesis, and, and and my PhD thesis is kind of scattered. And you you may have realized it. It actually large chunks of it were never published. I, I either never I either didn't get around to it, or I didn't quite see how to publish it, like strategically, in terms of like which journal and which community. Um, but the thesis tries to unify these things. Um, this was my dream. Um, yeah. So in the first in the first section, you talk. Maybe this is what you're alluding to. These different I think there were like these vector field type methods mm -hmm. and you identify kind of three different issues that they run into like this temporal aliasing problem and the fact that they're under constrained. So like if you're looking at a, uh, just a blank wall, then you can't really tell in which direction it's moving. Right. Yeah. One question I had is like, how prominent were these methods in the community at the time? Was it, was sort of everyone using these. And so this new perspective that you were taking was kind of a big shift. Yeah. So that, I mean, that, this is, this is partly what led me, I think this always happens when people are doing a, you know, doing a PhD, you're, you're learning. And at the same time, um, you're inventing new things because when you learn something, you don't just, you know, stick the facts in your head and you're done. You um, find ways to, connect things up and, and assemble them into some sort of coherent form. And at some point that's not very well defined, um, that form starts to take on an, a life of its own. It, be, it starts to become a, a, a new conceptualization or a new, a new result. It's not just the things that you started from. Um, and, um, and I think, you know, this is like a, a quote from, I guess it's Borges that, um, the basic concept was um, we don't really invent anything from scratch. It, everything is basically just a translation or a reanalysis of things that already exist. And so a lot of the things that we do are about um, recombining or remixing or reinterpreting or re-explaining things that are, you know, people maybe already know about or have already said in different, in different ways. So I, um, 
a lot of what I did in my thesis was to assemble, distill, and unify uh, things that I saw in these different communities. Mm-hmm. And you could look at it, um, you know, what I did with optic flow, well, so optic flow was a well-known problem. It had been studied in computer vision um, heavily since really the beginning of the 80s. Um, that's when uh, some of the most well-known algorithms were first developed. So the basic idea um, of what needs to be done and how to, how maybe you could do the computation at least on a on a digital computer that was a big deal to do that then um those some of those ideas were uh, uh, of course out and people had algorithms to to do this um they were often um you know plagued with artifacts and difficulties but but the but the idea was there so i don't you know i don't i wouldn't claim that i invented any of that i um in a sense the thing that i ended up describing um, borrowed the basic conceptual framework a little bit from Bertolt Horn, a little bit from uh, Lucas and Canade, um, um, who were working in uh, at Carnegie Mellon, um, who wrote important uh, groundbreaking papers uh, to, to to initialize this field. Um, but connecting that then to you know what what the brain does, so the brain doesn't do this with some sort of you know step by step algorithm. We, we do it with neurons and your neurons have to respond to things. So it's a parallel representation. It's not sequential and it's not algorithmic in a sense. So um, thinking about how to unify those things and how to think about how to describe um, the computations that the brain might be doing in the same language was, I think, important and um, I think that was pretty new and maybe even a little bit strange for the biological community, um, which includes the the people studying neuro the neurons, but also people thinking about the psychology, the perceptual psychology of motion perception, and um, what 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 humans can respond to and see what we what we're sensitive to that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so so. So, so in terms of, you know, like contributions, one of the reasons that the st- some of this stuff didn't get published is because I, I felt like in some ways, some of it was a review. It was a review of things that I had already and a redistillation of things that I had learned from other people. Uh, and, and again, I, I actually think research is always that way. There's, there's always a pretty big component of, of what we do that's, we didn't invent it from scratch. It's based on a whole bunch of things that we've heard about and we've assembled in our minds and we've like reorganized. Yeah, it did seem though that, so the key, I guess, method that a lot of this centered around was this probabilistic formulation that you came up with. Yeah, so that was pretty new. Um, again, I didn't invent the basic concept of doing that, um, but it was pretty new Computer vision was very deterministic back in those days. People didn't talk much about noise. If they did, it was something to get rid of, not something that you had to work with. Mm-hmm. And I think the field is dramatically different now. But back then, uh, you know, a probabilistic approach was a little bit more unusual. So I that was something that I think was new on the computer vision side. Um, but it was not new in electrical engineering. So people that did signal processing have been describing since the 1940s um, how to solve inverse problems um, in a probabilistic setting. 
So writing down a, a model that described, <clears throat> let's say, a set of measurements and their noise properties and asking, well, how would I go about you know, extracting the thing that I want, given that I have these noisy measurements? That basic formulation really comes to us from the 1940s. It was really it was built. There was a huge um, effort to build up um, ideas and actually working uh, technologies to do this, partly because of World War Two. So partly because of radar processing, for example, um, figuring it, being able to take very noisy radar signals and figure out whether there was uh, an enemy plane, for example. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, it's sometimes it may seem discouraging that it's uh, it takes war to um, or violence the in, the intent to um, enact violence um, to 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 um, push us to do to do these things. Um, it was a huge driver of technology and um, and knowledge. Um, mm-hmm. So, so those ideas were actually had very deep roots uh, and. Um, and it's just that somehow the computer vision community was very much, it's kind of a fun, it's always been a strange thing to me that computer science developed as a discipline that, that is, I guess maybe the, the idea is that when you build a computer, you're building it from physical devices. The physical devices are noisy, transistors and resistors and everything, very noisy, but when you build a computer, you actually go out of your way to make sure that the noise is something that will never affect you. <laughs> you build things that where you push all the voltages to the rails so that they're binary. They're either zero or one. They're not going to be anything in between. The, and the amount that they go in between, you're going to immediately push them back. Um, and these entire systems that we use are all built around those those principles and concepts. And so it means that computer science develops in this, what I consider a sort of strange um mindset that the world is deterministic <laughs> I see. um but but the real world and certainly the world that any biological system has to deal with is very very noisy every neuron in your brain is stochastic um there it's it, it has to operate using um ions and channels and um, the diffusion of those ions across those channels and the number of ions that are going to cross one of those channels or the number of molecules that are going to you know, connect from one thing to another or cause the opening of a channel is a completely stochastic process. So there's a lot of noise in there. And it's not like in one place there's like, here's the noise. No, the entire brain is noisy. And, and, in, in a, and I think that that is a theme that will – it was a theme that started for me when I started working on my thesis. Um, noise was a central part of what I was doing. I had to. I included it in all the calculations, and I asked, "How would you, from noisy measurements, estimate optic flow?" Right. And that became a theme that is with me today. Everything I do um, has this flavor, um, but it also makes it. It made it very weird for me to interface with the computer vision community. <laughs> um, that probably. Uh, it's a good sign that you're doing something. Uh, something new and impactful, probably, if that happens, though. I don't know. It's very hard. And, and maybe, you know, for, for PhD students that are out there, you know, that are going to listen to this. Um, uh, <clears throat> it's I had a lot of paper rejected, a lot of submissions to conferences and things, papers rejected um, in those days. Bec- and, and, and it was very frustrating and disheartening. I kind of felt like 
uh, maybe I'm just some crazy person off in the corner doing my weird little thing. And I think it's really cool. And, and everybody else just thinks either that I'm nuts. So some of the reviews were like, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, or, and some of the reviews were, oh, well, this is obvious. We already know this. And I mean, it, to the point where I would, um, there was one computer vision conference in particular that I submitted something to, and I literally got back two reviews. <laughs> one saying, um, this, this paper attempts to solve a problem that is impossible and therefore it should not be accepted. The other reviewer said, this paper describes a solution to a problem that is well known and has been and, and, and is well understood in the community. Therefore, it should not be published. It's like, OK, you can't both be right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It um, sounds like one of those like this statement cannot be proved statements where like it's true and false at the same time. <laughs> right. So I, I you know, so this was um, and I think, you know, we all anybody who's been in, in any field for a while has stories to tell about like reviews they got that that made them crazy <laughs> where they felt like, why don't they understand me? Or, you know, how could they possibly say that? Um, so anyway, I, I had plenty of those and it was very frustrating. I, I have to say, I feel very lucky that um, a lot of the people that I worked with over the years, um, um, you know, I, I felt like I communicate, I did manage to connect with and communicate with at least some subset of people that valued what I was doing. And I was lucky enough that, you know, when the time came, it, it, I managed to put a career together and, and be reasonably successful at what I was doing, even though I was getting these papers rejected right and left. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then maybe um, on that note of modeling the stochasticity and then maybe as a bridge to talking about the biological connection. So one part of this model is that it had, it used Bayesian inference. So it formed the kind of posterior over these image velocity vectors. And um, it just got me thinking just at a more maybe philosophical level. I was also talking with Aaron Corville mm -hmm. and during his PhD, he used a Bayesian model to model classical conditioning in animal behavior. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking like, is, is there something about this Bayesian inference that it has, it has like an unreasonable effectiveness for, for explaining things that happen in the brain. And is, is it just, do you think a good mathematical framework or do you think that something is actually implementing this in some of these brain functions? So I, I guess I'll say um, two things. So um, the first is that um, the, the, the word Bayesian, it, 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 it brings up, it, it, it hits people in so many different ways. It's, it's really quite incredible. And it continues to be amazing to me, um, the diversity of reactions to that concept. Mm -hmm. um, and that's because the history is very, very complicated and weird. Um, so Bayesian thinking goes back a long time, you know, Laplace and Bayes himself. And um, what happened in science is that in the early 1900s, um, people that were thinking about statistics for science, like for taking scientific measurements and then making determinations about um, how reliable the measurements were or how reliable, you know, some parameter or quantity was that you were estimating from the measurements. Um, we're arguing a lot about how to do that. And Fisher, 
um, who was a very you know strong-minded and strong-willed person, statistician, um, said, you know, you have no business working through all that stuff that Bayes introduced or Laplace and talking about priors when you're talking about scientific data and measurements. You, everything should be written in terms of likelihoods. This is the way we should do our calculations. This is the way we should do estimation. This is the way we should compare results. This is the way we should measure error bars. Um, this is the way we should determine statistical significance. So a whole program got set up, which is still in today's textbooks, which is this is how you do statistics in science. And if you take a basic statistics course in a in a in one of those um, subfields where this is the mindset, so that you know that would be typical in like biology or psychology or you know lots of fields, um, that's what you learn. Um, and it's very strange because um, the Bayesian stuff was already there, and in fact, uh, in that in the work in, in engineering starting in, again in the 1940s. Um, the idea that you had to incorporate a prior or that you had to um, use models that incorporated not just noise, but also some prior prior expectations or knowledge, you had to build that in. And when you did that, you could actually do a better job. And that's not just that's not some highfalutin philosophy or some abstract, you know, guess. Um, it's just like a fact when you go and do the calculations and you're trying to solve the problem in an engineering system where you actually really care about performance, um, you can do better if you incorporate this. It's just, it's just true. So, but, but also of course, along with that comes, uh, to put it in the, the word that gets used a lot today, biases. Putting a prior in means you're gonna bias your answers. Um, that's not always a bad thing. That's, that's, that if you do it right, that's a good thing. It gives you better results. And, but 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 strangely enough, the roots of this like go back to this weird schism that happened between the way statistics gets used in science and the way statistics gets used in engineering. And it's the engineers that grabbed on to this whole Bayesian paradigm again long wait long before I was thinking about any I wasn't even alive right back in the in the 40s actually I wasn't alive in the 40s. I know I'm your your oldest interviewee, but I wasn't alive in the 40s. Okay, so. <laughs> Uh, okay, so but this so for me um, when I thought about motion, it was it, it was completely obvious that you wanted to solve it this way. It's and and why why Bayesian 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 is is a, a natural way to set up the problem. It just basically it doesn't give you an answer. It just tells you a, a natural set of ingredients to right. that you can use to describe your problem. And I don't think it's about there's no argument to be had about whether that's right or wrong. It's just it's just a description of the ingredients and then a, a way of actually optimizing. So that's why it's, I think, so central for machine learning. But this is a way of, of getting an optimal solution. Right. So if you tell me that your signal, you're going to make measurements that have a particular kind of noise and you tell me um, what the prior probability distribution on is on the thing that you're um, making measurements of, then we can reason about um, just doing, based on definitions of conditional probability, we can reason about what the posterior distribution is, and we can reason about how to do estimation. It might be hard to compute that, it might even be intractable, but at least we can write down um, what it is that we would like to do. And I don't, I don't feel like there's, there should be anything controversial in that. Yeah, yeah. The controversy really is about where does the prior come from? 
And I think that's a, fun, a really deep, fundamental and beautiful set of issues that arise around there. Um, you can ask that for the brain. You can ask that for a machine learning system. You can ask, how is the prior stored in the brain? Mm -hmm. um, you can ask, how should the prior be stored in a machine learning system? I'm, I'm actually working on these problems. We, we just we just put a paper into the archive um, to put the first version up in July, and the, uh, the second version is going up probably at the end of today, um, which is about how do how do priors get stored and how do we um, make use of them? If can we can we store them in an implicit form and then make use of them? So, I see. I, I agree that that ultimately it is just a mathematical tool for incorporating priors. Uh, giving you access to these uncertainty estimates. Um, but it, maybe it wasn't that ridiculous in the sense that it seems like it is still an interesting question as to how this would be implemented in the brain. Or is it just useful for coming up with a, a an accurate model of what's happening? That I, it was not at all ridiculous. In fact, on the contrary, I'm, I'm actually saying I think it's really interesting and really important. So. Uh -huh. So don't apologize. <laughs> um, at least not to me. Maybe somebody else out there that is going to listen to this is going to disagree, but um, not me. Okay. So, so, um, so I think it, it gives you a really great platform. Um, and by the way, there's a lot of arguments in not just in the statistics community or in the science statistics community, but also in, in places like in psychology. So one of the things that came out of my thesis that I, I think I kind of introduced to that community was the idea that we should be thinking about <clears throat> in this same sort of formalism using um, priors and noisy measurements, we should be thinking about perception. Even if you don't want to think about neurons, you should think about perception that way. And I went ahead to describe how a bunch of illusions about that we have about motion um, and the way we perceive motion really arise in a very simple way once you you describe the system as having uncertainty like noise and also priors like expectations about what 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 it is that you would normally see and you put those things together and you can explain a lot of these illusions so i did you know that was another thing that came out of my thesis um so i think um that that last question that you were getting to which is 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 the key question not just for neurobiology i think it's the key question for machine learning i think it's a key question for autonomous systems so the the, the problem is um the prior you know the, the naive i think a naive view of this is that a prior it's not a big deal um the way you learn about the distribution of things is you measure you make a whole bunch of measurements of them and you make a histogram and now you know what the distribution is and that's your prior okay but that doesn't work um, for any of the modern problems that we're concerned with, because those problems are inevitably very high dimensional. And it, and it doesn't work at all for vision, right? Think about, you know, in your eye, each eye, you have about 5 million cones that are photoreceptors that are you know, color sensitive, and you have about 100 million rods. So even if we, let's, let's skip the rods. You got 5 million measurements in each eye. Mm -hmm. So it's a pretty high dimensional space. Um, you can't build a prior probability distribution on images that come into your eye by measuring a lot of them and then 
smashing them together in a histogram. It's it's most people that have studied statistics and probability realize that. Um, and um, but but it's important to realize the enormity of that problem because um, building histogram in a high dimensional space is is it's called the curse of dimensionality. It tells us that you know we you cannot do it. You can't get enough data to fill in all those histogram bins. In and because the number of bins goes up exponentially with the number of dimensions. And when you have 5 million dimensions, we're talking about something that is um, like, you know, more bins than the number of atoms in the universe kind of thing. Right. So this is not something like you can just sit and get more data. You can't, we have a lot of data. We've got Google with Google images, right? I don't know how many images are in Google images these days. It's a lot. It's not even close. It's not like, and it never will be. So you can, so you have to kind of stop thinking in this mindset that, oh, prior, yeah, of course, you just plug in the prior and you're done. We don't have a prior on visual images. We do not have a prior and we never will. We're not gonna have one in that form anyway. So now, now, now the Bayesian paradigm becomes a little more suspect. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's a very nice um, abstraction for thinking about the problem, but like, how are you actually going to do that? You, you're not going to, you don't have a prior and you never will. So I used to think that what we do is we'll build up a higher prior piece by piece. We'll take little tiny pieces, a little chunk of, of an image. We'll take a handful of pixels and we'll look at the relationship between those and we'll build some probabilistic description of that. And then we'll build something that sits on top of that, that combines the probabilistic structures that we see in little those little local groups and puts those together and we'll make a hierarchy. And I still, to some extent, believe that there's a role for that. But even that has turned and I, I worked on this for many years on building models like that. And it's turned out to be very difficult. So it sounds like the, uh, the, the jury is still out on that question. Could go either way. Well, right. So the question becomes, you know, if you, it's all perfectly fine. The math is fine. It's well-defined. It's a nice way to describe the problem. The Bayesian paradigm is a nice way to describe any inference problem, <clears throat> any inverse problem. Um, any problem where you have to calculate things in the presence of noise, um, it's, it's a nice way to conceptualize the problem. But when it comes down to actually doing it, and especially, um, and this is where, you know, there's a big, it's really the source of the schism all the way back to Fisher and Laplace and Bayes himself, right? Bayes was a, uh, he was a, 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 a minister. And um, so in some sense, the prior was like God given, right? You just, you just assumed it, it was, it was handed to you. Um, but in, in a modern paradigm, um, you gotta learn the prior. You have to learn it from data. And the statisticians you know, would tell you, well, that's not Bayesian anymore. If the prior is something that's coming from data, you're not doing Bayesian inference or Bayesian, you know, estimation or Bayesian anything, Bayesian decision-making, you're not doing any of those things. You're doing what they would call empirical Bayes. Empirical, they, 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 I once gave a talk where somebody got up at the end and literally yelled at me um, because I was calling my algorithm a Bayesian algorithm. And he was angry that I said that. Mm -hmm. 
He said, that's not Bayesian. And I was like, oh my God, I don't know what Bayes' rule is. I don't know what to do. And I felt, I was embarrassed. I was beat red. And he um, went on to sort of lecture me about how that's not Bayesian. That's called empirical Bayesian because the prior you've introduced came from uh, another set of measurements. And yeah, anyway, so. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's the penalty of working in multiple communities, right? Yeah, yeah. I see. <laughs> After you. <laughs> so I, I said, thank you for, you know, telling me this. I, I actually don't know that phrase, and I hadn't realized that people, you know, just made this distinction. So, um, mm-hmm. but I felt like saying, but did I say anything apart from the terminology? Did I say anything else that was wrong? Because I, I thought actually I was doing something kind of interesting. Anyway, he, so, so, but, the, but he, in some sense, he was making a really good point because it's not the same. Right. As soon as you switch the problem around and say that um, part of the problem is not just to learn something from the data you have, but you also over, over maybe longer periods of experience, you actually have to learn what the prior is. And that's, I think, fundamental to biological systems. Biological systems don't just function as input-output devices. They learn, they modify, they adapt. They have to um, have homeostatic regulation to adjust themselves to keep working properly. And that's something that um, long-term, I think those um, concepts will become central to engineering. We don't know how to engineer devices like that. Right, right. You know, you buy a printer, it's got a, it's got a mode that you can put it in that will let it do, um, that lets it adjust itself. It can, it can, um, it can test the, you know, basically the flow of ink through each of the jets, right? So you can, you can press this, um, what's the word? Um, You can, you can tell it to regulate or adjust itself, um, recalibrate itself. And then, and then it goes back to operating. So it's either operating or it's recalibrating, but it's not, but a brain doesn't do that. Your brain is constantly recalibrating, readjusting, learning, adjusting, modifying, changing itself. Um, And we don't know how to engineer devices like that, but we're going to figure it out. That's what machine learning is about. That's what I forget what they call it. Not continual learning. There's a phrase that they use in the, in the machine learning community for things that are constantly, that are learning while they're operating. And, and biological systems, of course, all do this, even simple ones. They, they regulate and adjust themselves uh, with experience. And uh, effectively what they're doing is, uh, you know, um, or at least a piece of what they're doing is um, they're building priors. They're building, um, you know, adjust, they're adjusting themselves. So the next time they're in that situation, they can actually react a little faster or do things a little better. Learning from experience. So I wanted to ask about the biological connection that you made in the thesis and then just in general. Yeah. So um, when we think about kind of pure machine learning in in a cartoon version of it, we might think about something like translation, where our goal is to just uh, build better and better models to get a higher and higher score on a translation benchmark. Here, when you make a biological connection with a model that you design, Do you have kind of different goals that you want this to explain some phenomena or the goal is to describe some data? What is the goal of making a biological connection in the first place? Well, I mean, you know, our theme here has been um, 
you know, my theme has been always to look for some sort of you know, fundamental uh, conceptual description of what of what's going on, of, of how the thing works. Um, but of course, to make things concrete, uh, what 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 I what I generally do in my work, and that, and again, this started with with that thesis, um, is I think about the sort of abstract conceptual thing, and then I to make it concrete, I have to do one of three things. And in my thesis, in a crazy way, I tried to do all three. Um, I either am going to use it to implement some computer vision or image processing algorithm. That's that's an engineering goal, or I'm going to use it to um, try to uh, describe the behavior of, let's say, neurons or some circuit in the brain. And the goal there might be literally to um, look for explicit evidence of neurons whose behavior is carrying out the operations that are part of that model, right? Um, or, uh, and the third thing is, is um, I might say, well, I don't, I don't want to make predictions at the level of circuits or individual neurons. I'm going to make predictions that have to do with the overall um, functional properties of this of this thing. Uh, when when which things it does well, which things it does badly, where it makes mistakes, that kind of thing, and I'll compare it to like human perception. So I'll ask, I'll I'll, I'll have human data from humans um, making judgments about things that they see, like can you tell the difference between these two images, or you know which thing is moving faster. Or which thing is brighter? Simple, simple experiments, perceptual experiments, and then we can make predictions about how those things should come out if our conceptual framework is correct and if our model for how that should work in a brain is correct. So all three of those things are in the engineering, the neurobiology, the perception. Each of those endeavors um, allows you to kind of make contact with reality, <laughs> right? So you have this abstract concept about how to how to compute something or how to represent something, and now you test it by either forcing it to solve an engineering problem or comparing it to the way um, the brain, I don't know, in a mouse, uh, a bunch of a bunch of neurons in a mouse, the way those are are representing information or you compare it to what a human sees when they look at pictures on a screen and then typically it'll be kind of one isolated aspect that you're trying to understand better or is there some goal of then incorporating this model into some other model and then coming up with a complete model of everything well you know the lifelong goal which is i, I shouldn't even say lifelong it's like um yeah that <laughs> The goal of everybody that studies the brain is is eventually we're going to understand the whole thing, right? Um, uh, I don't know when that's going to happen. I, I won't place any bets. Um, but but of, but everything I do, um, I, I find that I, I live in a landscape that um, you know a sort of conceptual landscape that includes thinking about. Um, sort of abstract forms of computation, representation, reasoning, um, inference um, that, that extends to everything. Um, but of course, um, and I love reaching out and thinking about how those connections could be made. Most of those are kind of loose and you know, there's sort of a vague sense that there might be, for example, a way to connect some of the vision things we do to memory. I don't really have a precise way to do that. I have some notions. 
at some point that might develop into a project, one of those notions. But often they just kind of sit simmering in the back and I occasionally bump into them or, or bring them back and, or I have a conversation with somebody and they come up and we talk about it. But, you know, it, you know, you have to kind of keep refocusing yourself and thinking, about, well, what can I what can I do right now that would be a real step forward, like something with, that's solid. And to do that, you know, you have to kind of reconnect to reality. That's what science is about. It's not philosophy. It, it, it means you have to come back and connect to measurements. Like, and engineering is not philosophy either. There you have to build something and show that it works. So those are the concrete things. And, and the concrete things usually mean that you have to kind of narrow your scope and you have to focus on a particular example or set of examples. You're not going to solve the whole thing. Yeah. So maybe like as a, as a, a case study for this. So here you were looking at optical flow and you built a model and it was able to describe some measurements that, that were made, right? So then following the PhD, did you then build on the same model or did you replace it with something else? And is your current understanding of optical flow kind of similar to, to the model shown here or is it based on something else? If that question makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I think I, like, like many people, um, when I got to the end of my um, my PhD, it kind of happened a little bit when I got to the end of my master's degree also. I felt a little burned out. I had been working really hard. Um, and, you know, the writing was difficult. And I, you know, and by the time I got to the end of that, I just felt like I needed a, a break. I needed to clear my mind and think about some other things. So I kind of, um, I didn't think immediately uh, about working a lot more on motion. I started thinking about other things that I might do. Um, when I look at, you were asking about, you know, how I see motion or optic flow now. Um, it's funny. Um, uh, I think a lot of the things that I worked on are, um, are I thought then, and I still think that they're, they're kind of um, fundamental to the problem. Um, a lot of improvements have been made and, and in terms of technology, you know, a lot of things have changed. Our ability to compute, to do things on computers is, is so vastly different now than it was in 93 when I was finishing my thesis. Um, but I think, I, I think I got a lot of things right. And I think I set, set up a, a kind of substrate that is, that is a nice way to think about the problem. And I still, you know, when I want to tell somebody about the optic flow problem, I go all the way back and I tell them about um, actually my advisor's work, um, which is how I started thinking about um, the, this representational issue. And then I walk them through a bit of the stuff that I did in my thesis. And then I kind of bring them from there to, well, here's a, here's a challenge. So, and this is, this is relevant because it's quite recent. Um, I have a student who's interested in um, making predictions using machine learning, let's say deep neural networks. And, you know, we can start thinking, well, okay, how do we make predictions in videos? And in a sense, um, that's a very old field. It's way, way, way older. It's older than optic flow. Um, so when, when people started thinking about how to encode um, uh, to build 
compression engines for video. Um, you know, the kind of th that's the kind of thing that MPEG does, right? So you use this compressor called MPEG. It's like JPEG, but it's for movies. And what does it do? Well, actually, what it does is it estimates motion. And then um, rather than copying, you know, sending along all the pixels for each frame, what it does is it sends um, motion information, optic flow, basically, in, in some form, um, that then says, well, in order to create the next frame, part of it you can probably get by just copying pieces from the previous frame and moving them appropriately. So if something moves to the left, you just have to copy the stuff, the content, the pixel content that was in the previous frame and move it to the left and paste it into the next frame. At least that's a good start or approximation of what the next frame is going to look like. And then you kind of send along some more bits in the bit stream in order to fix it up. And that more or less is how motion compression works. It's, it's, it's motion compensated um, compression. Okay. So how do you make predictions in a biological system? You're not going to copy and paste blocks of pixels. That doesn't make any sense. I don't even know what, what that would mean in a biological system. You're measuring things with cones. The cones are on an irregular lattice, so you can't cop. And, there's, and besides, there's no wires or mechanism for copying things from one cone to another. Even if you could, it wouldn't even make sense to do that because they're not on a grid. They're, you know. So what does a biological system do? What does it mean to make a prediction in a biological system? And, and how do you build an efficient representation of the moving, the world around you is constantly moving, even if it's not moving, like my office is pretty stationary right now, but I'm moving, <laughs> my head's going back and forth, which means that all the content that lands on my, and I'm moving my eyes around too. So all the content that's landing on my eyes is constantly shifting and moving around. So how the hell do you build um, a stable internal representation of the world around you um, when the stuff that's landing on your eyes is jumping around and moving and drifting and translating and things are getting covered up and revealed because they're occluding? It's, it's really, um, I think, a, a, a fun and fascinating and almost terrifying thought experiment. So for me, I, I would love to understand that. Yeah, I see. How, how does the brain figure out how to build a stable representation given the complexity and constant variation in that input? So that's no longer optic flow, right? Yeah. It's, optic flow might be a way to start thinking about that, but it's not an answer. So then in some sense, you're maybe answering this question, but I, I want to ask about the impact that deep learning has had on your perspective so either uh, <laughs> i mean it, so it's obviously had a huge or a large impact at least on practical machine learning and a lot of machine learning research but i was interested to hear what you think of it from your perspective especially when you start thinking about having to uh have this constraint of it reflecting things that uh actually happen in the brain i mean so yeah like just as an outsider i'm familiar with some papers like Dan Yeamans and Jim DiCarlo had this paper showing that like different levels of the CNN were predictive of different spiking activity in different areas of the visual cortex. Um, so as an outsider, it'd be easy to, to, to just say that, oh, this is having a, a huge impact, but I wanted to get your opinion. 
I really like the work by Dan and, and Jim. Um, I know them both well, and I like, in fact, we have a grant together. Mm-hmm. Um, so just just say that at the outset. Yeah, yeah. Um, for me, that story is, um, it's very much, uh, you know, the glass is half full and the glass is half empty. Um, so on the one hand, in some sense, I've been studying, since my PhD thesis, um, I've been studying what happens when you build a system by cascading stages on top of each other. So you know that that this model that I built in my thesis for um, representation of motion is a two-stage model. It's only two stages. So, well, that it was, Believe me, that was already too much. It took so long just to simulate <laughs> that. Um, but, but I was super interested even then in this idea that um, that it was pretty easy to understand one stage of processing, but 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 two suddenly felt like it really was much harder, and had much more um, sophistication and computational power, and so that started to emerge in that thesis work, and it emerged a little later, um, I, about you know toward the end of the 90s, I had a postdoc, and we worked on um, thinking about how to represent visual texture, and that became a multi-stage model. Um, which you know you can sort of think of it as like an like a crude and early hand engineered version of a deep net but it's not deep it's only two stages and we but we really wanted to understand like how would you design this what would you measure at the two stages and how do you think about analyzing that system and what it can represent so in a sense um, I, i'm not trying to you know claim credit for deep nets here don't don't read this the wrong way and i'm saying instead what i'm saying is that when the deep net thing rolled along and, and exploded. In a sense, it had been there for a long time because Jan LeCun, you know, back in the early 90s, you probably know this, um, was already doing convolutional neural networks um, in, a, in, a, in a sense to do digit recognition. And I had always, you know, neural networks always seemed interesting to me, but, um, but I, I was much more interested in really designing and understanding things um, than just training them. Like, put something together and let's see if we can get it to learn. So, and that's still true. So my reaction to the whole deep net um, um, enthusiasm is a, is a sort of mixed reaction. On the one hand, um, I think it's um, beautiful and amazing and very satisfying to me to see that um, when you cascade things, very interesting computations come out and very powerful computations. It's great. And I'm super excited to think about those. We're, my, my group is many of them are using these tools. We're thinking about these ideas and we're trying to merge them with the things that we, we know about, which is how to represent visual information and how to test how well we know we understand those representations. And, um, and we're, we're working on that. We're incorporating it into our work. On the other hand, I am finding it, you know, in, in a typical way, you know, when a research area gets really hot, it's great because it's, you know, it's exciting and it's interesting and lots of stuff happens. But there's also like a ridiculous amount of hype. Um, and I think most people would agree with that. Um, and um, and a lot of it is really overstated. Right. So there's there's there are major. Um, first of all, there's I'll say that the simplest thing. There are major things that we don't understand, right? So, so it may be that there are some incredible um, engineering examples of things, performance on tasks and things that are amazing, but there's huge amounts of stuff that we just don't understand. Things that work, but we don't know why. 
And so I'm much more interested for myself in, in, in understanding how things work than in just saying, oh, look, here's something that works. On the biology side, the science side, um, I think you, you, I, I think what Dan and Jim did was really important in showing that there's something common maybe about those representations, but they didn't teach us anything new about the brain. And I think they would agree with that. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so the problem is if you want to use a deep net as a tool for understanding the brain and you're going to, and your approach is going to be, I'm going to train a deep net and show that it behaves like some part of the brain at the moment that didn't help us very much because we don't understand how the deep net works either. So it's, it's not really adding very much to our understanding of what that chunk of brain was doing. Um, just that we now accept that maybe now we have a system that's easier to do experiments on. So I don't have to go into a laboratory and do an experiment with an animal. Um, I can do experiments on the, on the neural network. And, and of course, Dan and Jim are doing things like that. Um, so I, I always I, I thought of that initial result as a good starting point, but it's not really um, it's really a promise of what's to come more than result by itself. I do not think current deep nets are a good model for the brain. I think most people in neurobiology don't. Um, but maybe it's a nice starting point for thinking about how we can um, build a better understanding. Right. Yeah. Could you maybe just give like one, um, just one example to keep in mind of how they aren't a good model? Like I was watching one of your talks and I think you were saying something about we might need to rethink what is the fundamental unit of computation. And was that kind of yeah. getting at the fact that a neuron in a brain is a lot more complicated than what we think of a neuron as in machine learning? Or was it? Yeah. No, no, that's you're 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 absolutely right. So, so that um, I think anybody would agree with with the following uh, you know simple statement that a neuron is a much more complicated device than um, a, a linear weighting function followed by a rectifier. Um, but the but the but the critical question is, does all that complexity that you see in a neuron um, does it matter in some fundamental way? Does it contribute to, in the end, the computational capabilities, or is it just there because it's biology and you had to implement it with, you know, membranes and ion channels and stuff like that, right? And and so all that extra baggage and complexity is just there because you had to build it out of tissue, not because it's making it do something interesting in terms of function and computation. Um, and that's another half, half empty, half full question. I think, you know, the crudest description you can come up with, with an, for a neuron has, has been, not, this is not something that came up with deep nets. This is, we have to go back to McCulloch and Pitts, which is the 1940s again. That was a good era, the 1940s. Um, McCulloch and Pitts, I think it was 1943, if I'm, I hope I'm getting that right. Um, you know, they did the first artificial neuron description and for them it was a weighting function and um and a, th a binary threshold so the output of their neuron was zero or one and of course now you know we we, we went to sigmoids from there and nowadays people use rectifiers 
all of these are, um, if you like, a first pass, like zeroth order description of what a neuron does. And so the the right, the sort of more um, graded question is, is that enough? Is that is that enough to capture the primary um, computational properties and function of a neuron, or do you need some other things? I'm 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 of the view that you need other things, um, and we've worked on those some of those things. I think there are things that neurons do that are not just you know biological baggage; they're actually part of the computation. Um, some of them are about local learning and adaptation. I mentioned that earlier. The brain is not a device that you train and then you and then you're done. Yeah. It's constantly adjusting, and the adjustment is not in some one special center where all the learning happens. The entire brain is adjusting everywhere. Mm-hmm. So, again, we don't know how to engineer systems like that that are constantly readjusting, or we don't know how to engineer them certainly in a way that they will behave in a stable and useful way. Um, I mean, you could always inject random drift into whatever system you want. <laughs> it's probably yeah. not going to help. Um, <laughs> so, the, so the question for me is um, is exactly that. It's what you're getting at. Like, like how would how would how do you separate out the pieces? How do you draw the line between the stuff that's just biological baggage and you know it, it matters maybe for implementing it in a in a biological system, but it doesn't matter computationally. How do we draw that line? Or, or to put it back in your words, like, have we drawn it in the right place now? Like, is a linear thing with a rectifier enough? I think no. Yeah. But that's easy for me to say. Um, the right thing is to um, demonstrate, to prove that if you incorporate other neurobiological attributes into the computations, the local computations of, let's say, neurons in a deep net or in a machine learning system, that you can show a benefit from that. And I think we've already done that in my group. I think we've done that several times. Uh, machine learning community doesn't seem so impressed. So we'll mm-hmm. keep trying. We'll keep trying. Yeah. And then last, I, I think just due to time, last question that I always ask on the thesis review is, if you look back uh, all this, you know, decades of experience, can you summarize one piece of advice for a new researcher? Uh, it doesn't have to be all encompassing, but just something that comes to mind that uh, someone could keep in mind. Well, I mean, I don't know if this is really good advice for everyone um, because I'm speaking, you know, with the luxury of having of, of being, you know, well established in my career. So I'm not uh worried about what i'm going to do or where i'm going to get a job and that kind of thing but but you know i'm going to say it anyway because it's it's kind of the way i thought about it even back then um which is that i i think what matters i think don't don't be too strategic Mm. be be instead be um you gotta love what you do you have to be passionate about it. You got to be in it for the right reasons. You got you got to do this stuff because you are just driven to figure things out, and to and to be excited about finding something cool, um, learning something, and talking to people about it. So I think you know the reasons to do things in general are you know I always tell my students there's, there's like three reasons to do something. You do it because you love it. 
you do it because you're good at it <clears throat> or you do it because someone else wants you to do it. And I think that's the order, the right ordering. Um, all of them matter. Um, and, and it's not, it's not about bad or good. You, all of those are reasons to do something, but I would put them in that order. Um, because I think, you know, 20 years after your PhD, you don't want to wake up and feel like, gee, I really hate all this stuff that I'm doing. I'm, I'm sick of it. I actually don't like it. Um, I did it because I thought it was a way to get famous or because I, because that's what my parents wanted me to do, or that's what someone else wanted me to do. Um, I think you want to end up feeling like, well, despite all the hassle and the crap and the difficulties and, you know, it's hard to get a job and it's hard to get grant money and it's hard to do this. And and, the, and I'm teaching and the students hate me. And <laughs> you list all the things that are difficult and you say at the end of all of that, but I still love it. I love what I do. I love thinking about these things. I love interacting with other people and hearing how they think about things. Um, so I don't know. That's for me, the thing that keeps me going, it's the reason why I'm still doing this. And it's the reason I still love it. That's awesome. Well, yeah, I think that's a great place to end. And thanks so much for taking the time to do this. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. So thanks for coming in. The interview. Thanks. And uh, thanks for inviting me.